My message today is entitled, Standing, Striving, and Unafraid. And I hope to take a few minutes and talk about what it means to be a Christian today in a world that is very rapidly changing. Today at 2 o'clock, we will celebrate a milestone in American sports. Does anybody know what that is? The Daytona 500, that's right. NASCAR season begins today. And I bring this up because before they start the race, before their festivities begin, they're going to do two things. They're going to do two things that's missing in America today. They are going to stop and honor America and give glory to God. They are going to stand in a public pulpit and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a NASCAR fan, for that reason alone, you ought to participate in the American saga. Well, you don't have to be a political strategist to recognize that our world is changing today. I know I've shared this thought with you before. It wasn't too long ago. In fact, almost 60 years, you remember being told by your grandparents that this isn't the world they grew up in. If you're over 40 years old, you've probably heard this from your parents when they proclaim, this isn't the world I grew up in. Well, my friends, today, if you're 20 years old, this isn't the world that you grew up in. Consider this, in 1965, not one Christian denomination throughout the entire world recognized or I think even thought about the idea of same-sex marriage. Today, many formerly mainstream denominations have fallen away from orthodox doctrine. Many, to their shame, have fallen to the faith of the world. Their message no longer conforms to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead tends to follow the nightly news. Consider this, in 1969, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Many of you don't remember that, but I do. In 1969, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. In that same year, Ronald Reagan signed a no-fault divorce bill into law. It's one that said we can separate the bonds of marriage simply because we choose to. And the world hardly noticed when that happened. We were so enthralled with ourselves in seeing something that we had accomplished by putting man on the moon. But within the past five years, our nation has descended into legislated morality. We no longer reflect a Christian worldview. There was a time not too long ago when parents could rely on the culture and the church to reflect Christian values. As a result, the church in America went to sleep. We ceased to stand and speak for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we never stood for Jesus Christ because, perhaps because we were afraid. Well, the world we live in is dangerous and dark, and throughout the world, Christians are increasingly more under attack. And here in America, we're witnessing a climate change that's moving at unprecedented speed in placing the government of the United States in opposition 
to the Christian worldview on which it was founded. And Dr. Albert Moeller is the president of our Southern Baptist Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary. And Dr. Moeller recognizes this as a gathering storm. He said religious liberty is under direct threat. Already religious liberty is threatened by a new world regime that exalts erotic liberty and personal autonomy, it openly argues that religious liberty must give way to what we feel we deserve. A new moral and legal order is ascendant in America, he said. The new order is not only possible, it is only possible if the original intent, the very words of the Constitution of the United States, are twisted beyond recognition. These are days that will require courage, conviction, and clarity of vision. We're in a fight for the most basic liberties God has given humanity. Religious liberty is being redefined as the mere freedom of worship, but it will not long survive if it's reduced to the private sphere with no public voice. The very freedom to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake, and thus so is the liberty of every American. There is a gathering storm, and the threat is urgent and real. We face the danger of a new dark age marked by the loss of liberty and the denial of human dignity. There is a battle to be joined and much work to be done Together we may be found faithful to these tasks. As Churchill reminded us, in every gathering storm, there is a summons to action. The legislated lifestyle is changing America. And it will come to an almost certain conflict. In fact, it has in recent months and days come into a certain conflict with those of us who hold to the biblical definition of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem is we have been asleep for far too long and most of us don't know what to do about it. Many of us say there's nothing that can be done at all. Well, not surprisingly, the Bible provides us with guidance, mission, and direction on these very contemporary issues. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please open them with me to Philippians chapter 1, where we'll begin in verse 27. Philippians 1:27. Let me suggest that we should never open our Bibles in silence, but always with a sound of thanksgiving and prayer. Will you pray with me now? Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to stand here this morning. I thank you for the word you have given us all that we hold in our hands this morning. The Bible, your true, inerrant, unending, authoritative word. Father, as we open our Bibles today, we pray that you will open our hearts and open our minds and that we may come to know you more than we did when we first entered. We turn now to you, dear God, to hear the voice in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
we firmly stand unafraid. Amen. Well, if you would, let's stand together in honor of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. We'll share two verses this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, the Apostle Paul is calling for a lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he's saying is that our entire manner of life, the way we live, not just our thoughts, but our words and deeds, the way we live our life is what's in focus here. And this is not a static or timid lifestyle, nor is it private or locked away. This manner of life is to be demonstrated in public. It's to be a clear sign Paul expects to hear from them, and he expects to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, and that they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that they're not frightened in anything by their opponents. Standing, striving, and unafraid. Well, the miracle of our faith in the living God is that in spite of our disobedience, he loves us and has given us his Bible, where he progressively from the Old Testament into the New reveals who he is and what we have been created for. The Bible is, of course, a great gift that tells the story of God's work and redemptive acts in history. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's in Jesus that God has ultimately showed us who he is. And through him he has demonstrated the perfect life for which we have been created. This is the life that Paul is calling for us to emulate in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. There's an illustrative story in the third chapter of Daniel where this timeless truth was demonstrated years before Paul's ministry to the Philippians began. You know, if you think of your Bible as a series of stories, that's a wonderful thing. But the Bible is one great story. It's the story of God's work in Jesus Christ. The story is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a series of pictures. Think about it as you read through the Bible and you think about the many stories that God shares with us. Do you have pictures in your mind of what that's all about? The illustrations that God provides for us in his word and in our mind, in our thoughts, in our deeds is infinite. We can never exhaust that endless source of truth. 
The Bible is a story that begins when there is no light and it ends when there is no darkness. Well, if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. We'll take a minute and visit with Daniel. In this text, God is going to provide a perfect illustration of what it means to have a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, of what it means to be standing, striving, and unafraid. Well, Daniel is a book about Daniel, of course, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It contains several stories about their confrontations with King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is one of the more famous ones. It took place about 600 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. Now, in the 6th century B.C., Babylon was the world's greatest superpower. An interesting part of their empire-building strategy is they would relocate the productive classes of the defeated people to Babylon. It's a very effective way of subduing a, a, a conquered people. Today we call it subjugation by assimilation. You capture a people, you bring them to your homeland, and you teach them to act and behave just like you. The idea was the defeated people would live in the Babylonian culture. After a while they would grow to like it, forget or discard their old national traits in favor of the Babylonian worldview. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're exiled from Israel. They're raised in Babylon, but they didn't conform to the Babylonian ways. Oh, they lived in it. They, 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 they excelled in it, but they didn't conform to their gods and their practices. And this morning, we're going to look at the manner of life and see how they stood, how they strove, and how they were unafraid for the glory of the gospel of Christ. In verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar will begin our conversation. He says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? See, Nebuchadnezzar had built a golden image that was 90 feet tall. He placed it in a very public place and surrounded it with orchestras and musicians. And as we see in verse 15, if you were out and about in Babylon and you heard the music, and notice it didn't matter what kind of music it was, you were required to bow down and worship the image. Now it's interesting that this image is never given a name. Babylon had many gods, but this one is not named. Nebuchadnezzar has already given us a hint of what this image was all about. This image did not represent a single god. It represented all the gods of Babylon. It stood for the values, the lifestyle, the worldview of Babylon. It was a pluralistic culture, meaning the people were required to privatize their faith and celebrate diversity and worship all the gods of Babylon. That's what pluralism is. If we have a noun and we make it plural, what do we do? We add an S, and that's many, right? Same thing if you treat it as an adjective. We're worshiping many gods. All are accepted. All are just as good as everyone else. Everyone has a right to believe whatever he wants to believe, and more importantly, everyone must conform to that unified idea. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't saying 
I'm not asking you to worship the gods of Babylon instead of your God. I'm asking you to worship the gods of Babylon in addition to your God. What that meant was you had to privatize your faith. In private, you could worship God, but in public, you had to be like everybody else. All great pluralistic cultures, Babylon, Rome, Beaverdam, and Washington, D.C., do the same thing. When you're alone in private, you can worship any god you please. But in public, when you hear the music, you must bow down and worship the gods of the culture. Don't think that your religion has exclusive claims on truth. You can be religious in any way you want if that helps you, but in public, you have to be like everybody else. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do this. And that was very brave. Because Babylon and all pluralistic societies seek to assimilate you into the public culture by making you privatize your faith. And there are dire consequences if you refuse. Today, if you're a Christian and have not felt the pressures of pluralism, perhaps you've already bowed to the image without even knowing it. Consider this. Recently, a study was conducted on two people groups. One was a group of evangelical Christians believing that marriage is a sacred covenant between one man, one woman, and one God, and that divorce was prohibited in their faith. The other, an equal number, was a group of educated professionals who claimed no religious preference, believed marriage was a civil matter of contract between two consenting parties, and that divorce was simply a matter of contractual law. Now what's interesting and really quite revealing is that the divorce rate in both groups was statistically identical, almost 60%. And what that tells us is even though the church defines marriage in one way, the culture defines marriage in another. The people turn and bow to the cultural norms as opposed to standing for the gospel of Christ. Standing, striving, and unafraid. Well, courageously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego clearly state, we will not bow these guys are not closet believers. They're actively participating and enjoying the culture of Babylon, just like Jeremiah in chapter 29 said that they should. All three are influential participants in the government and culture of Babylon. Standing for Christ in the culture of Babylon or Beaver Dam is difficult. Sometimes we have to face the music and endure discomfort in verse 17, with some of the most beautiful language in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
The three answered as one. God is able, he will deliver. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three loved God for who he is and not just for what he could do for them. Have you ever trusted God and then not been satisfied with his answer? It's a common problem. We all say things like, I trusted God for all these years, faithfully going to church and serving there. I was even a Sunday school teacher. And I asked him for one thing, and where is he? Well, that's not loving God for who he is. That's loving God for what he can do for you. These three don't see it that way. They say, but if not... But if not, I believe God will rescue us. But if not, regardless of the outcome, we will not bow down. This is what Paul would call standing firm in one spirit with one mind, unafraid. But it was very dangerous to disobey, pardon me, to disobey the king. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take their answer very well, did he? He was enraged and he wanted the furnace to be as hot as his anger. Seven times the normal rate. The fire was so hot that the soldiers who were charged to throw the offenders into the furnace were burned up themselves. Now in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the furnace is used as a metaphor of a description of suffering. The Christian lifestyle is by definition full of furnaces. If we follow Jesus, we're destined to a life where suffering is included and is to be inspected. In fact, you should be concerned if you're not suffering some kind of discomfort when you apply your faith to the rest of the world. I don't mean that you're going hungry or cold, but when you turn on the news, when you read the paper, when you hear public commentary, there must be something inside of you that says this is not pleasing to God. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. So standing together, the three tightly bound fell into the fiery furnace, and it is here we see what it means to strive together, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar quite apparently found someplace safely away from the overfired furnace that killed his soldiers. And now he looks into the fire and sees something quite remarkable. The first thing he notices is that the three are no longer bound. They're walking around unhurt in the burning, fiery furnace. And this astonishes him. But there's more. He asked, verse 24, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And then as he looks into the furnace, the picture of suffering and death, he sees they are not alone. There's a fourth person in the fire with them, and this one is different. He appears to the king to be like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar gives us a hint about this fourth person in the fire. Verse 28, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood something that King Nebuchadnezzar did not. They understood that the gods of Babylon, all those that they were required to worship, the gods of Babylon had a problem. They didn't exist. They knew the God of heaven whom they served. They had a relationship with their Lord and Savior whom they understood that regardless of the outcome in that furnace, they would be saved. In the Bible, we see angels. Some are like Gideon who appear and say, this is what God says. But at other times, we see the angel of the Lord, and when he speaks, he speaks as if he is God. The theologians call this a theophany, a physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Well, Nebuchadnezzar understood far more than he knew as he gazed into the furnace and saw the three standing together for the faith of the gospel. He saw that they were not alone. Christ was with them in the midst of their suffering. The God who would deliver them from harm was there striving right along with them. This is what Paul meant when he spoke of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We worship a God who tells us who he is and shows us who he is. We worship a God who has promised us a world of tribulations. We worship a God who has promised to be with us, even in the gathering storm. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We worship a God who can and sometimes does save us from death. But if not, as believers, we are assured that he has already saved us through death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived a manner of life that was worthy of the gospel of Christ. When the government called on them to privatize their faith and to put their beliefs and sounds behind closed doors, they said, no, we will not bow down. They stood striving and unafraid. Well, the effect that a life lived in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ has on others, especially those who are opposed to it, is really quite remarkable. In this story, the fearless actions of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taught old Nebuchadnezzar something about God as well. In fact, if you look at chapter 4 of the book you're in, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar has something to say. Back in chapter 3, verse 28, he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. 
And that's the guy who threw him in the furnace, saying, Well, today we're being called upon to privatize our faith. Say whatever you want inside your church. But once you step out on that sidewalk, we don't expect to hear that anymore. The argument is if you do business in America, when you hear the music, you must privatize your faith and bow down to the worldview of today. Christians are by decree to celebrate diversity, debauchery, and every form of public decadence. If so, well and good. But if not, you shall be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Well, who is the God? As I prepared for our time together today, I couldn't stop wondering where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found the courage to stand against a superpower. We know they read their Bible. The only inerrant, authoritative, living source of truth where they and anyone who chooses to open its pages can learn about the living God. Although the Bible does not say, perhaps they found comfort in Isaiah chapter 43, who just a generation before their fiery ordeal had this to say. God said, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Well, today we worship the same pluralistic gods as those of Babylon. Instead of a 90-foot statue, our contemporary image is being made for us by uncontested, aberrant, and sexually confused cultural elite. The Babylonians knew it was time to worship the gods of their culture when they heard the music play. Today we know it's time to bow down and hear the ridiculous rhetoric of a worldview with no virtue, no vision, and no shame. If left unchecked, Pluralism will soon make fulfilling the Great Commission and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ illegal in the American public square. Already the Christian worldview is being targeted as intolerant, bigoted, and hateful. One court has agreed to hear arguments in a lawsuit against the largest Bible publishing house in America for publishing hate speech. What's more alarming is that today we see one formerly mainline Christian denomination after another so eager to reflect the culture rather than Christ that they abandon the gospel. And now when compared to the world that they were called to evangelize, they quite apparently can no longer tell the difference between the light of the world and the darkness of the approaching night. We live in a world that is dangerous and dark. So what are we to do about that? 
let me suggest we need to join in this discussion. We need to know and apply Daniel 3 and Philippians 1. It's time to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people may hear from us in the public square once again. It's time to see us standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we need not be frightened by anything our opponents have to say or anything our opponents have to threaten us with. For although we are thrown into the striving, fiery furnace, we know the God who will and has delivered us. And this, this will be a clear sign of our Christian manner of life it will be a clear sign of their destruction, but of our salvation and that from God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the strength of your word. We thank you for the unending strength that you provide for us every day. Dear God, give us the courage to stand and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that you have already accomplished the work that stands before us and that we are merely called in obedience. As Jesus has said, follow me. Father, it's in his name that we're privileged to pray today. Amen. Well, we come now to the perhaps most important part of our service this morning where we can share the invitation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In my preparation this morning, hasty as it was, I want to share with you something that I think about every morning. When I was growing up, I grew up in the Reformed Church of America, and the way our services ended was this great, huge pipe organ would sound a Bach cantata or concerto, I'm not sure which it was, but we all knew the music, and that meant service is over, time to go home. And the minister would step down the stairs and walk and stand by the door where he would greet everyone leaving the building. And this is what he would say. He would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, that comes to us from the Bible, from Numbers. That's the ironic blessing, the blessing that the Lord instructed Aaron to share with the people. And there's scripture that surrounds that blessing, scripture that I want to share with you this morning. The Lord spoke to Aaron and he said, "This, with this you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and in this blessing we hear of the Lord's name three times. The Lord bless you, the Lord lift up his countenance, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And the purpose of that blessing, and we see it repeated throughout the story of the Old Testament, the purpose of that blessing, God said, so they may put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The priests were charged to bless the people of Israel so that God would place his name upon them. Well, God has fulfilled that promise in his son, Jesus Christ. We who come to know him as our Lord and Savior have his name placed upon us, and we can unashamedly stand as Christian believers. 